This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. The president, of course, got infected with the virus. We know he got a few different treatments, one of which was the antibody therapy. He thinks so highly of it. Uh, he's calling it a cure. Not true yet. Not yet. There's no cure for this. But is this treatment beneficial? We'll look into whether it is and how it works. Summer is over and we are settling into the fall, at least uh, here in L.A. and most parts of this part of the planet. Does this mean a second wave of the virus, or are we still in the first wave? Hello to those of you listening in Antarctica. Even though the pandemic has hit uh, so many people hard, results of a new poll, they don't seem to reflect that, so we'll dig into that. Let's start uh, by asking if the president is right. Angela Rasmussen is a virologist at the Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia University. Angela, is the president right? Is the uh, cure here now? And can we just kind of go about our business? We do not have a cure. Um, the president has made that, that statement, presumably because he is recovering, although it's not clear to me that he's fully recovered yet. So we certainly can't say that that, that antibody cocktail that he was treated with is in fact a cure. In fact, we don't really have much uh, clinical trial data on those antibodies, so we don't really know whether they work or not. So take us through again. This is the Regeneron antibody cocktail. Take us through what it is and and what it could mean. I guess we can add his data in with with the data that is there, but this is still a work in progress. That's absolutely right. So these monoclonal antibodies are just like the antibodies that your body makes normally to, to counteract a viral infection. Um, They're effectively antiviral uh, drugs when they're used in this way. Um, And it's really important. They may work. Um, It may be important, uh, the timing uh, at which you're treated with them. Um, But again, you really can't tell that at all from just giving them to one patient, uh, that patient being President Trump. So is there a danger in what the president said? Uh, Yes, I think there is a danger because the president has been promising people that not only is this a cure, but it's going to be readily available for everybody. It's going to create a huge demand for this drug, uh, which isn't even approved yet. Um, And there is no way that that they will be able to make anywhere near enough doses to to treat all the people who are currently suffering from COVID-19. So I think that it's incredibly dangerous to suggest the pandemic is over and that we have a cure when we don't actually have that and it won't be available to everybody who needs it, even if it does work. Yeah, I was going to say, do we even know how many doses they have or they can make if we're still if we have 40,000 cases in the U.S. a day, they would have to have 40,000 doses a day. Yes, and I, I don't think they're at that manufacturing capacity. I don't know exactly the details um, of what they can manufacture, but it's it's not enough. It's nowhere near enough uh, for the demands that, that this will create. And aren't we actually jumping the gun in several areas because the, the full trials, right, the full studies have not been completed. I'm not even sure that phase three trials have actually really fully begun on it. So that would involve some people getting a placebo, some getting the real one. What happens now that the president has said, oh, this is a miracle drug, it it cures. Why would anybody in a trial now want to get the placebo? Well, that's exactly what this problem is. And we've actually seen this happen before. So during the West African uh, Ebola epidemic in 2014, 
some of the people who were evacuated um, to the US and Europe were treated with a drug called ZMAP, which is also a monoclonal antibody cocktail. There was huge demand for it. They basically used all of the doses that they had because the drug was still in development. When they did a clinical trial uh, several years later during an Ebola epidemic in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it turns out that ZMAP actually didn't work. Um, so we may be running the risk here of having a drug approved without ever being able to get any information about whether or not it's actually effective. If it does work, if others can make theirs and they work, what do you see it as in the most hopeful sense? Is this a bridge to get us the time to a vaccine, get us through that period? Yes, I think that's exactly what it is. And I mean, the president was also treated with two other drugs um, that have been shown to have some benefit to patients with COVID-19. That's the antiviral remdesivir, as well as the corticosteroid dexamethasone. Um, so we already know about those. This would potentially be another tool uh, in our toolkit to treat people with COVID. But really what's going to get us out of this is a vaccine. Um, because while it's, it's good that we have better treatments for COVID now, and this may be one, um, the, the best cure is going to be preventing people from getting sick in the first place. Dr. Angela Rasmussen, virologist, Center for Infection and Immunity, Columbia University. Fall is here and the weather is getting cooler across much of the U.S., except here in Los Angeles where a heat wave is about to roll in. But mostly it is getting cooler, and that has doctors and scientists concerned about a so-called second wave of the virus, except... Is it really a second wave? Let's ask Dr. Tara Smith, molecular epidemiologist at the Kent State University College of Public Health. So, doctor, can we have a second wave if we're not even done with the first wave? Right. I, I really am not a fan of the wave terminology. And that really comes from looking at the 1918 influenza pandemic, where there, there were these distinct outbreaks in the spring of 1918, the fall of 1918, and then the winter of 1919, where you saw cases go down in between those those kind of peaks. But we haven't really seen this with COVID-19. I mean, they, they've gone up and down, but they never really had a trough where we had the epidemic under control. So I think it, it, a better terminology, um, Ed Yong is a journalist who works for The Atlantic, and he's called this our patchwork pandemic. And I think that's a little bit better because we've seen it bounce from place to place um, and kind of go up and down in different regions. But overall, for the United States, we haven't come down to you know a, a minimum number of cases since this began. Yeah. So take us through that and then talk to us about what you think is going to happen in the winter, because first we remember it was the East Coast and then it was more the South. And California's just kind of been like a slow burn this whole time. But now it's more in the Midwest and parts of New York are coming back. So do we continue to play the patchwork game as we move on through? Right. And, and exactly what you're explaining has, has is what has happened. And unfortunately, I think that's a result of our really our lack of federal response. So if we had something that united all of these areas that um, you know, put in a, a uniform response across the country, I think we could have had this under control, you know, in the spring or perhaps perhaps in the summer, but we've never had that. So that's why we keep getting these eruptions in various areas that, you know, take off and then, you know, kind of wane after a little while um, after they've gotten under control. But I think we're going to continue to see that and, and it's going to get worse in a lot of the cold areas as winter comes on. Well, it isn't part of the, the problem. Maybe it is the total problem is people just fundamentally don't 
understand what's happening here. I think people think, or some people do, that when they hear about the virus not progressing as much in their community, it's because somehow it's taken a vacation. Uh, the virus is always there, right? It's just when you lock people down or they restrict their activity. Well, yeah, fewer people get it. Once you open things up, guess what? More people get it. Right, exactly. And, and we've seen that come and go. Um, in places as, as you know, there was, of course, the lockdowns in the spring in many areas. And then as especially restaurants and bars, those seem to be really good areas to spread the virus. As those opened back up, you saw cases come back as well. And then now with return to universities and primary schools in person, you're seeing some of those cases come back from that as well. So, you know, with without having complete lockdowns again, which I don't think a lot of people are going to go for, you know, the only thing we can do is, is try to mitigate it, try to remind people to wear masks, to continue to distance, that the virus has not gone away, even if it's at a low level in your community at the moment. That could change really quickly. What do you worry about when you think about the holidays and people are going to want to try and, and do something, hopefully as mm-hmm. safely as they can? Yeah, I'm really concerned, especially about you know older people who have missed their children and grandchildren, understandably so, um, over the last months. And, you know, coming together indoors for a long period of time without masks, I mean, that's a perfect storm. We've seen that happen with family gatherings. We've seen that happen with weddings. We've seen that happen in churches. Um, And once you have a lot of people doing that for Thanksgiving and Christmas, I am really concerned that this is going to be what really overwhelms hospitals in multiple areas at once. So we've seen... Um, you know, the need for morgue trucks and and things like that in New York and in Arizona. Um, But I'm really concerned that coming into, you know, December and January with the holidays, that we're going to see cases and hospitalizations concerningly explode in many areas of the country. Dr. Tara Smith, molecular epidemiologist, Kent State University College of Public Health. Coming up after this short break, are you better off now in the middle of a pandemic than four years ago? If you said no, you are in the minority. This pandemic has led to the deaths of more than 200,000 Americans. It's crushed businesses, led to millions of people losing their jobs. Yet, despite all that, a new Gallup survey shows 56% of people consider themselves better off today than four years ago. This was done in September, so uh, it was well into the pandemic, effects being felt. Let's get to the bottom of it. Jeff Jones, senior editor of the Gallup survey. So Jeff, did this surprise you? Um, Yeah, it is surprising to me, Um, but I would say that when we've asked a slightly different question earlier this year, just asking people to evaluate their finances right now, so not compared to the past, it's, it's pretty similar to what we found here. So um, when we last asked that question, 53% of Americans said their finances were either excellent or good. Now that's down from last year, certainly, um, but not much, not as much as you might expect. It was 56% uh, when we asked it last year. It did come down a lot in, in April, right? you know, during the height of the pandemic to 49, but it kind of bounced back. So it looks like people's finances haven't been changed that much for the most part. I mean, certainly lots of people have been really hurt by the pandemic, but just looking at the average American, we haven't seen a great deal of effect um, on their finances. 
I was going to say, I mean, did the poll go into in any great depth about why they feel better? Because, you know, four years ago, let's see what didn't happen four years ago. We didn't have the pandemic. People weren't dying from it. People had jobs. Uh, the economy was booming. Uh, it's hard to imagine why they think they're better now than they were then or as good as they were then. Yeah, I think they're really focused on their own situation um, as part of it. A lot of it is influenced by their politics. So that 56% includes 89% of Republicans who say they're better off um, than they were four years ago. To put that number in context and, and just to kind of comment on you know the era we live in, in 1984, uh, when Ronald Reagan was running for re-election with, you know, a strong economy, a landslide win for him, 60% of Republicans. So you just see the part, you know, the partisanship involved here. Republicans, you know, almost regardless of what's going on, are just very positive about anything uh, you ask them these days. When you've been asking the question over the years, has it been getting better consistently? Have we been feeling better as we've gone through the decades? Really not. It, it's kind of surprising. So we haven't asked it every election, um, to be fair. We didn't ask it in 96, so that might have been a good comparison um, if we had it. But the numbers, really, the only one that stands out as being unique was 92. Um, in that election, more people said they were worse off than better off. But the ones that we have asked it, 1984, 2004, 2012, the percentage uh, getting better was kind of, you know, in, in the mid to high 40s. So, you know, even now it's certainly better than it was, you know, maybe, you know, eight to 10 points better. But um, for the most part, it, it's been uh, pretty stable uh, historically. By the way, you mentioned uh, what was the percentage of Republicans who felt as good or better than four years ago? Uh, 89%. And what was the figure for, did you do Democrats and independents or people who don't have any beliefs at all yeah on anything. the democrats i don't the exact number it was in the 20s maybe 24 i think i have in mind and independence was it, it's usually pretty close to the national average i think it was 52 percent among independents do you think the people with no beliefs are having a more a relaxed year than, than other people yes because they, they don't know <laughs> they what to don't believe have to stress about anything <laughs> yeah because they can't believe anything <laughs> yeah i don't know um you know, I, I guess one point I would like to say, too, is so this is people evaluating their own finances. Um, historically, there hasn't been a really solid link between, you know, how you're doing and how you vote. Usually what influences how you vote is how the country is doing. So um, I just know from, you know, my political science classes back in the day, they really never found a link between people's finances and how they vote. It's really, you know, how the, you know, the country is doing itself. So when we look at those numbers, those aren't good, as you would expect. This is maybe what you're expecting when we talk about, you know, what's going on with the country today. 14% are satisfied with the way things are going in the country. Um, people's evaluation of the national economy are more negative um, than positive, and probably most crucially, um, in September, on average, 44% of Americans approved of the job Trump was doing as president. So, you know, there's definitely a disconnect here. People feel good about themselves. Actually, they, they rate his handling of the economy pretty good. He's majority approval for handling of the economy. But when they net everything together, and a lot of that is probably influenced by the coronavirus, you know, his approval rating comes out 
underwater and not, you know, in a place where we've seen incumbents win uh, historically. Does, do you think the markets color this a little bit? We've had so many discussions on this show about that's not the economy. The markets are one thing and you can be in the green and say, great, but that's not the overall economy. And maybe people feel better because that's kind of tainting it a little bit if they got a job still, if they've got a 401k and they know things are all right. Right. I think yeah, that certainly helps, uh, you know, when the market is better, even though it's, you know, technically just a number on a piece of paper until you cash it in, that does make people feel better about um, their finances. We know that, you know, certainly, as, as you mentioned, not everybody is in the market and, you know, it's really only slightly over half of Americans in the market. But, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, even with the pandemic, unemployment is high, but if 8% are not working, that means 92% are. A lot of people are able to do their job, you know, probably doing it differently now, either at home or they're wearing PPE when they do their job. But, you know, a lot of people are working. I mean, certainly some industries have been hit really hard and those people are out of work. And, you know, we saw with the last unemployment report, a lot of them have just given up on working. So unemployment might be worse than, you know, the eight point whatever rate says it is. But, um, you know, for the most part, people's uh, their finances are pretty stable unless, you know, they have a job loss. You know, things don't really change that much for them. Jeff Jones, senior editor at Gallup. Jeff, thanks. Britain's government feeling pressured to take action to try to stop a rise in coronavirus cases. It now says it'll pay two-thirds of the salaries of workers and companies that have to close as a result of new lockdown restrictions, which are widely expected to come into effect next week. The Treasury chief responded to calls from businesses, local leaders, and unions to provide a financial support package to prevent mass job losses in sectors that will be subject to new restrictions. Pubs and restaurants and Large parts of the north of England, where the coronavirus is spreading the fastest, are expected to face a government order to shut their doors again. That's barely three months after reopening. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.